Well, James spent the first half of this chapter reminding his readers that the pursuit of pleasure for the sake of pleasure itself is what was the cause of wars and fightings amongst them, amongst Christians. We, we dealt with that pretty succinctly last week. What we're reminded in those first 12 verses is that the solution to, for a Christian, for a, the solution for seeking pleasure for the sake of pleasure itself was to have a renewed submission to God, verse 7. To draw near to God and he would draw near to you, verse 8. And to humble ourselves in the sight of God because it's then that he, he lifts us up, verse 10. And what we come to now is something that I've simply entitled Learning the Two Scriptural Taboos of James 4, 11 through 17. If you recall last week, I brought it to our attention that uh, in the whole book of James, there are 54 imperatives. In the Greek, an imperative is a call to action, a call to do something. And there are 108 verses in the entire book. So that averages out at a call to action on every other verse. And as we come to this last section of chapter 4, we're going to see that there is indeed a call to action not to do something, but to not do something. It's, it's the same call to an action of not doing something. And so, what we're encompassed by in these last few verses are two taboos. The first is the sin of judging other Christians and the second is a mistaken overconfidence in oneself. I'd like to deal with the first one. If you'll draw your attention with me back up to verse 11 and follow along with me, we read, James says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Verse 11. And so he begins with this uh, reminder to his readers, predominantly a Hebrew uh, society, but Hebrews who had come to faith in Christ and are therefore Christians. And so the uh, sovereignty and the eternality of the word of God moves forward to every professing Christian this morning and today that we are not to speak evil of one another and thereby becoming a judge. The word speak evil in the original language is the word and it means this, if you're taking notes this morning, to slander someone 
when he or she is not there to offer a defense. To speak against someone when they're not present to defend the thing that you're speaking against them about. This kind of slander is actually condemned all throughout Scripture. A couple of verses that you may want to take note of. God is speaking in Psalm 50, verse 20, and he says this, You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. He continues in Psalm 101, verse 5. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. The Apostle Paul calls this kind of action, speaking evil of another, something that's characteristic of unbelievers, non-Christians. In his letter to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 30, he said some of their characteristics were that they were backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, and boasters. He feared that that was the kind of thing that he would find when he came to the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 12.20, Paul wrote to them saying, I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, and whisperings among you. Peter, the Apostle Peter, also spoke to this same issue. And he was speaking again to a predominantly a Hebrew Christian society, a Christian Hebrew society. And he said in his first letter, the second chapter, verse 1 and 2, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, katalilim, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. In other words, if a Christian is growing because of their desire for the sincere pure milk of the word of God, this evil speaking or slander of others is going to be fading. If it's not fading, then that's you know, an indication that growth is not happening. It's like the, uh, the warning light in the car. Tire pressure's low, tire pressure's low. What do you do? You get out and see to it that you correct that pressure. But let's get back to James. James condemns this uh, sort of behavior. He condemns this sin for two main reasons. The first uh, is that it is a breach of the royal law. What do I mean by that? Well, 
again, because James's audience would have been largely Hebrews, but they're Christians now. They had spent many years going, or however old they are, they had spent many times going to synagogue. They had been exposed to the scrolls, and though illiterate, many in his day would have been clearly informed by the law of Moses all the way back to the book of Genesis, all the way back to Leviticus. And in in the letter of the law of Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18, it was clear. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's where it first comes into play. Now we're familiar probably as those who spend most of our time in the New Testament, though I exhort you strongly this morning, don't do that. It's important to have a whole understanding of of Scripture and spend as much time in the old as you do the new. But we're familiar perhaps with uh, many of the encounters that Jesus had, both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus brings up this truth. I'll remind us of the encounter in Luke's gospel that one of the scribes came to him. Remember what a scribe was. A scribe was one who uh, would take the scroll and he was responsible to copy the scroll so that these scrolls would endure throughout time. It would be an old papyri piece now inscribed with new ink, new pen on a new papyri piece. And interestingly enough, a scribe uh, held even the name of God as as holy. Uh, You can follow this in some of your Hebrew historical writings, but a scribe, when they were engaged in copying, as they would take the the quill and dip it in the ink and carefully write each word. When they came to the name of God, they put the quill down, they went, took off their garment, washed themselves, put on a brand new garment, came and took a brand new quill with brand new ink and then wrote Yahweh. Even the name was holy. So a scribe, a scribe was so familiar with the word of God as we know it in the Old Testament. And Jesus tells us, Mark tells us about something that happened to Jesus, that a scribe came to him and asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? You you know this one, right? And Jesus' response was, Well, you shall uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And the second is unlikened to the first in that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, The scribe, in listening to Jesus respond, 
He said, you have said well, as if Jesus needed uh, the accolade, being the incarnate word of God himself, right? But he said, you, you have said well, because there is one God. And we are to love him, the scribe goes on, with our whole heart, our whole soul, our mind, our understanding. And the scribe went on to say, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves." You know what Jesus told him? Mark chapter 12, 28 to 34. I found Jesus' response to that scribe's revelation or knowledge uh, amazing. He said to him, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, to exercise the same kind of love that you have for yourself towards your neighbor is close, is being close to God. He said, you're not far off. And after that, no one dared question Jesus anymore. The Apostle Paul actually uh, capsulates this entire truth in his letter to the Galatians. I think we have it up there. In Galatians 14 and 15 in chapter 5, he said, for all of the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Yes, it's a breach. It's, it's a breaking. It's, it's destructive to the royal law. And that was James's first point. But the second reason he condemns it is even more arresting, if you will, than the first. Because secondly, to do so is an infringement on the prerogative of God. To sit or stand in judgment of another brother or sister in Christ is an infringement upon the prerogative of God. We read it in verse 12. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Very strong word, isn't it? Barclay, William Barclay in his Commentary reminds us, quote, only he, meaning God, has the authority to judge. No human being has that authority. You've heard it said in our culture today, ready? No one is above the law. And yet, at times we look at our judicial system, our human judicial system, and we wonder if that statement holds true in the kingdom of men. Chicago, 1924, Walter Law was found dead in the front seat of Belva Gartner's car with the murder weapon and a bottle of gin sitting next to him. As law enforcement continued to investigate, they found Belva in her apartment wearing bloody clothes and she told the police she had found him dead. She even admitted to having a gun for her own protection and going drinking with Walter at one point in time. They arrested her, but she was acquitted later and 
The reason she was acquitted is, is to put it simply, her entire defense was that she didn't remember what happened that night. 1954, Dr. Sam Shepard was convicted of bludgeoning his pregnant wife to death in their home outside Cleveland, Ohio. He was adamant that he was not guilty. At first, he was convicted of the crime, but in 1966, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Shepard's conviction, ruling, quote, that he had not received a fair trial, unquote. Almost above the law. If you're my age or of my generation, you remember, of course, the famous O.J. Simpson trial, tried for the murders of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ronald Goldman. And I'll read this for you. It says that he was represented by Johnny Cochran, who made headlines with an argument about the fit of a glove in evidence during the trial. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. And you recall, Simpson's lawyers argued that the police had mishandled the evidence and that there was reasonable doubt as to Simpson's guilt. It makes you wonder as we look at the current news right now with this convicted, uh, well, he's not convicted, he's charged uh, guy in Ohio, uh, Idaho of those horrible murders. And I don't know if you noticed it or not, but Dateline, I think 20 Minutes had done uh, even segments on him. And I wonder how he's going to, you know, be able to have a fair trial when the public is already being introduced to so much of what is called so evidence. They extended his trial to June, and he was fine with that. He waived his rights to an expedient trial. And why would someone waive that unless they just want the notoriety and believe sincerely that he may get away with this and be, quote, above the law? I don't know. Just putting that out there. But the fact of the matter is that even though human governments may fail us, no one is above the law of God. And only the one who authored his law has the legal right to change it. I love this. The Bible commentary tells us that he stands as the executive and judicial branch of divine government. That's a quote worth having. To stand in judgment of other Christians is a breach of the royal law and it is an infringement upon the prerogative of God. It's taboo not to do it. The second taboo that we find in this collection of verses comes to us in verses 13 through 17, and it is a mistaken overconfidence in one's self. A mistaken overconfidence in one's self. I draw your attention to verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, 
Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. <laughs> wow. It makes you wonder, made me wonder, perhaps you're not wondering, but I think this morning you may wonder a little bit. Why was James being so direct? Why pointing out, you know, this particular kind of behavior, you know, oh, we're going to go here and go there and make a profit? Answer comes to us from some of the history of the Israeli people, particularly during the time of the New Testament being written, that James is painting a picture that his readers and his listening audience would have understood. What is that picture? That the Hebrews were great traders of the ancient society. Many of them were great business people, both women and men. And during this time, of course, cities were being built and erected and cities needed citizens. And it was always an opportunity to be an entrepreneur, to go to a new city and begin to exercise trade and make a profit there. In other words, they could almost just point on a map and let's, you know, let's go there. And we'll, we'll spend a year there and we'll, we'll exercise our gifts of trading and we'll make a profit. And evidently, this fact, it's a historical fact, that the Hebrews were excellent traders of the ancient societies, that this idea or this characteristic that we're just going to go there and make a profit for a year, was prevalent. It was prevalent amongst the Hebrews that had become Christians. Why is that important? Well, a man or a woman is to be changed when they come to Christ. It doesn't matter what the old habits were or the old structure, the old inclinations. If a man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And don't you just get bothered by some of those ugly old things that rear their ugly old head and want to, you know, invest themselves in that ugly old self of ours? Lord, help us. But we are changed when we come to Christ. We are no longer the same. I'm not what I want to be, but I'm not what I used to be. The writer of the Proverbs put it this way in Proverbs 27.1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And why? Why was this so important to impart 
to uh, his listening audience and to the readers that would take this, this letter all throughout the countries of that time and particularly to the, the gatherings of Christians because of the sovereignty of God. You remember what Jesus said as a parable parable in Luke 12. He spoke a parable to his followers. I'll read it. Verse 16 through 21. He said, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentiful. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Since I have no room to store my crops... So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Isn't that somewhat the clarion call of the person who says, you know what, I'm just going to go do that and then I'm going to make a profit and then I'll, I'll, I'll have that under my belt. And then I'm going to go do this and I'll make a profit and I'm going to have that under my belt. Now let's take that same uh, ideology and import the personality of one who has become Christ. For those in the world would say, I'll do that, I will, I'll, I'll be at ease, I will eat, drink and be merry. Under the umbrella of those who come to Christ, wait a minute. We're reminded all throughout Scripture that we are not promised tomorrow. How clear and how you know, relevant that is uh, in our household right now. There's no promise of tomorrow. There's today. You have today. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. And Jesus reminded this, his listeners in this parable. He said, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Those who lay up treasures for themselves are not rich toward God. So to make, make it clear, he wanted his listening audience, he, he reiterates it, that what they're doing is they're boasting. Verse 16, he says, but, but you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Not that that applies to anybody here this morning, but it might. Not that it applies to anybody at home who may be watching this and just kind of taking it in as, at ease, but it might. And so it's, it's a very clear, direct, powerful, true uh, imperative, a call to action, but not to do something, but to not do something. To not judge, 
your brother or your sister because it's a breach of the royal law and it's, it's an infringement on the prerogative of God and to not boast about what you may do or think you may do tomorrow. Instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. And so he, he closes this, you know, closes this like wonderful section, hard to hear, but recognizing again that it's, it's to me, it's to you, it's to every Christ receiving and believing born again child of God. Therefore, first word of verse 17. Therefore, all that I have just said there, it's there for a reason. And the reason is that to him who knows to do good, to the one who now knows, James is saying, that, that to stand in judgment of my brother or my sister is wrong. And I'm not to do that. To the one who now knows, I'm not to be boasting about my self-confidence and, and what I'm going to do and how I'm going to achieve this and that, that that's wrong and I'm not to do that. So he, to him who now knows to do good by not doing those things and does not do it. In other words, goes ahead and, and involves themselves in those things. Not to overemphasize the point, but to overemphasize the point this morning. He's saying, to him who does not do it, to him it is sin. Sin. And so this morning, if this sin has been a part of your life, the great news is that repentance is as near and available and immediate as saying, Lord, forgive me. That's me. Wash me and cleanse me afresh that I might live my life in a way that pleases you. Very simple, very available. And to leave this morning to turn off that television set cleansed again by the efficient blood of our Savior. I know I need that cleansing always. I know that his people do, that we do. So will you say that last verse with me one more time? Let's read it together. Verse 17. Here we go. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Will you join me as we close with a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you this morning that you are able to pinpoint by your Holy Spirit sin in the life of your child. Because we're all in process, Lord. We haven't arrived. 
the Apostle Paul reminds us that at times even in his life as, as one who had encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he writes later, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, my Lord. That this morning, Lord, to anyone that this word would speak and that in their heart of hearts they would say, man, that's me. I need to correct my direction. Lord, I need you to redirect my steps. That that availability and the beauty of that forgiveness is as quick as it is spoken. That we confess our fault one to another and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Lord, it's a crazy world out there. And we as Christians this morning want to be recognized as different. We don't want to blend in, Lord. There should be something about our lives that causes others to take note. And these two things are certainly those things that you want us not to do. And so we commit it to you now and trust you for your work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We stand with me and we'll close. That phrase, maybe we could sing it together. We sang it earlier. My heart is yours. My heart is yours. Take it all. Take it all. What's the last line? My life in your hands. My heart is yours. My heart is yours. Take it all. Take it all. My life in your hands. My heart is yours. My heart is yours. Take it all. Take it all. My life in your hand. May the Lord bless you this week. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he grant you favor and give you his peace. In Jesus' name, amen.